Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. All right, so kids, you uh, can go and create havoc with whoever's with you that are the havoc creators if you haven't already gone on the bouncy cast and all that stuff. So bless you. And uh, have a good time. Thanks for the guys who are working with them. And uh, for our guys, Amy and uh, Danny are having some time off this week. So uh, we're grateful to Connor for stepping in and helping us with the the keyboard. I'm sure you'd want to join me first up um, tonight in sending our love and and prayers to Eileen and Graham, who I know will be be, uh, watching us here tonight. And in the uh, aftermath of the atrocities in, uh, in Christchurch in New Zealand, a little close to home uh, and a little scary. And uh, also our love and prayers and all the grace and goodness of God to the Muslim families who tonight will still be grieving and suffering. It's a horrible thing to happen to anybody, men, women and children. So we send our prayers, we send grace and pray that... Um, that they will find the peace of God in all of this. Uh, we wanted to do things a little differently. Just um, since we, we moved to Q, we've been trying to experiment uh, with new format and new approach. And I make no apologies for that because uh, if I'm honest, one of my great concerns, and particularly as we've had privilege to travel and uh, as we've been in the US and in the great state of Utah, who incidentally they... Uh, the, the B is the symbol of Utah, be happy. Um, I have been very aware as a, as a church leader and as a, a preacher that, that in essence churches are very much of a muchness. And, and this might sound horrible, uh, but it's not meant to be. But in essence, you've seen one or two, you've seen all. And uh, very often the only distinction is what I call the production value. Some have got better music. Uh, or the thing that seems to be at the moment, some have got better coffee or better greeters, but but by and large, it's the peripherals that are mostly um, deciding what happens. Basically, going into the environment, you're pretty much going to get a similar thing. So really it is, you know, you you pays your money, you take your choice kind of thing, which I think is great because I think it's necessary and I think variety is important, so I have no problem with that. Um, however, if, if somebody doesn't book the trend, we actually get stuck in the trend because nothing new is being explored or looked at in the context of where does this go from here? So that's one of the reasons if you don't like it, I apologise, but we've always been innovators. I've never wanted to dress my age. I've never wanted to act my age. I've always wanted to see things a little differently, do things a little differently, Um, because you need that in our world. So thank you for those of you who've been so faithful and so supportive, and uh, and also for those of you who've borne pain in all of this. Thank you also to you. 
Um, but I think it's the right thing, and we just pray that God will help us to be a shining light in what we do for everything that we need to do. Now, I think the way that we've gone also can create problems, because when you go particularly one direction in a thing, obviously you can, you can push like the pendulum across, and sometimes it needs to swing back. So one, one of the concerns was that... Um, um, as some of you are not gracing us with your presence on a Wednesday night, um, basically the problem I see is that your journey can be reduced to soundbite spirituality. And um, I, I say this out of deep concern because I think sometimes uh, where, where we don't want to overburden you and overstretch you with some things, nor do we want to undersupply you with what is important and necessary, uh, I'm old enough now to be able to figure out in most lives where this will be in two years' time or where this will be in six months' time. Some of you haven't figured that out yet, and I want to try and help you and for some of you to save you from something. So we felt that within the context, we wanted to try and introduce from time to time something that gives a little more time to string one or two more things together in the context of where we sit in our belief and in our understanding of God and the gospel and life and Jesus and all that stuff. So so tonight, tonight is a little bit of that. And uh, I want to talk to you about what might be controversial to some tonight, which is the problem of the naming of God. Um, it's interesting what my brain's doing at the moment, because I told you when we were doing Joy the last two weeks, I, I couldn't get out of my head, um, you know, the room for business, room for pleasure. I told you about that. Some of you are familiar with those old songs. We go back a long way, don't we, Eunice? And uh, I woke up this morning, sounds like a song, I woke up this morning, yeah, with this on my mind, um, and this, this was another old song, Pass me not, O gentle Saviour, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art falling, do not pass me by. Saviour, Saviour, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art falling, do not pass me by. Now, remembering that as a kid, it is an emotionally charged song, and a lot of them were. It was deeply charged with emotion, but it was also saturated with the suggestion that you might get passed by. And I'm sorry to say, I've mo or, or I'm happy to say, I have moved on from the idea that somehow the gentle saviour might pass you by unless you just say the right words or make the right call at the right time while the gentle saviour is passing you by. It put pressure on people to believe that the separation from God was so great that unless you had this little moment of where your humble cry was heard by a gentle saviour, the suggestion is you will get passed by and you could get passed by. I don't think that anymore. I think the grace of God is much bigger. So, so as I kind of relate to these things, I, I am greatly challenged to try and deeply convey to you the convictions of my heart about where I am in my journey. So, so what do we think about when we think about God? It's a very important question. Some people would say, I never think about God, and I would beg to differ. What I would say is, they don't have the name God, and they don't have the terminology God, but we're all thinking about something that is the more than, the other than, the beyond, the outside, the not yet accomplished, the not yet found. 
And we can play games with words to say, I don't really think about God. I would say that actually isn't really true. And I'm happy to have a conversation that doesn't use the word God, but the statement itself is not true. So, so what do we think about when we think about God? And, and does it matter? I think it still matters greatly, actually, what we think about God. How we categorize that in the context of the divine, the universe, ourselves, the world, life, death, all of those things, love. Now, at the root of uh, most Jewish and Christian thinking on this question lies the record of an encounter between the divine being and this character called Moses. And um, um, our first song kind of referred to this, and some things that I say tonight might seem to be contradictory to our first song and some of that teaching, but it isn't. It's more paradoxical than contradictory that you would understand what that means if you were here the other Wednesday. So let me read you just a few verses from from this ancient book of Exodus. In chapter 3, it says, Moses said to God, so, so what's happened here? This is the, this is the occasion, the account of, of what we would call the burning bush. When, when Moses is in the, he's out in the desert, he's run away from Egypt, and, and he has this encounter with God in the desert. And he sees a bush that's burning, but it doesn't get consumed by the fire. Now, whatever you want to make of that, he's fine. The, the, the point I would say is that there's a message in here because God got Moses' attention. And having got Moses' attention, this, this, is, this is what happens. God says, I want you to go back to your people, the Israelites, in Egypt. And I want you to tell them that I'm about to help them. So that's a you know, brief summary. So we pick up the story in, in, in verse 13. Moses said to God... Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now I won't go into the Hebrew words for this, but it's another interesting talk, but obviously can't slot all that into 30 minutes that I have tonight. God said to Moses in response to the question, What shall I tell them is your name? God says, tell them, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. I want to wrestle a little bit on the question of the naming of God and what do we think about God when we think about him with this whole idea of God saying, I am. Because it's like, what kind of an answer is that? You know, if I'd never met Jenny and I said to Jenny, Jenny, what's your name? And she said, I am. I'd say, I know that, but what's your name? I am. Well, I know that, but what's your name? So we've got this interesting idea that God somehow, and I'll deal with another aspect of this, 
is reluctant to name himself in the way that we would name people. Now, I also want you to bear in mind that the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, are accredited to Moses as being the author, but they were most probably not actually written by Moses. Now, this is troubling to me, because all of my life I just received what I was told about what I was told it about. And uh, sometimes if you begin to do a scholarly search and you begin to investigate some things, it can be quite troubling. And I understand that's why some of you don't like to come and go too deep in teaching because you feel that that teaching might upset your equilibrium because it might put some question marks over you, what you've decided you don't want questioning. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. I'm not saying it's healthy. But it's fine. So when you begin to look at this, there are some problems. Now, now uh, I have no intention tonight of running you through the technicalities of, of all of that. You can do your own search on, you know, on the wonderful Bible of Google if you wish to do so. It'll tell you lots of things. It's an interesting tool, which we never had for many years, and makes research very easily. And you'll find some conflicting things. You'll find some people who are unbending in their thinking about this stuff, but by and large, from a scholarly perspective, it is, it is doubtful whether Moses actually wrote those five, first five books. Now, it doesn't mean that if there was Moses, uh, that, that he didn't have input and impartation and there was verbal stuff passed along, but there are many things in there. I mean, even in the text, for example, you know, it says that Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. Now, if you were writing a book, and you were the author, would you be likely to say that you were the most humble person that ever lived? If you were a narcissist, you would. That's somebody who is totally in love with themselves, but I don't think you could label that, that this man Moses or Moshe, as the, as the Hebrew calls him. And also, you wouldn't be able to record your own death unless you are very clever. Now, those two things in their own right are not enough to suggest that that is not correct. And I'm not here to rubbish off either the first five books or to rubbish off Moses' input into those five books. Simply to say to you that, that he probably didn't actually write those books himself. And that as fact goes, as far as we can tell, the first five books of the Bible weren't actually written in written form as we would understand it until about 600 to 200 BC, a long time after the life of Moses. Now, some would argue that within that process, and this is my point, that the purity of who God is has been hijacked, named, and tribalized. So my issue is not what Moses' involvement was. My issue is that in what has been recorded, it has been taken potentially and hijacked, named, and tribalized. So perhaps the God who then we become introduced to on a continual basis may be a hijacked version 
of the God who was attempting to convey his reality through Moses at that time. And then, of course, what happens is it becomes tribalized. This is our God. This is not your God. If you're not part of us, you can't be part of this God because this God does not accept anybody who's not part of our tribe. You get the gist? Uh, Sad to say, some probably a heavy emphasis of the Christian gospel, has also become that. Hijacked, named, and tribalized. This is our tribe. This is the way our tribe functions. Now, you don't even have to look outside of the church to understand that system. You only have to look within the whole area of Christendom and say, why do we have Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostals, Congregationals, Presbyterians... Um, you know, and all the other 30,000 other variations, because each one to some degree wants to hijack, name, and tribalize their understanding of the gospel. And I don't want us to be guilty of that either, because I can see the model of that here. So, in Exodus chapter 6, and you'll, you'll hopefully see where I'm going in, in just a moment. In Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2, it says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. Now, here's where we've got a little problem, because in our translation in English, Lord was translated for the word Yahweh, or what we know as the, as the Latin derivative Jehovah. So it's almost like God says to to, to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, this is my name, I am. And then he comes back a little later and says, oh, by the way, Moses, I forgot to mention, my, my name is actually Yahweh. Now, here's the problem. Again, I don't want to get too deep on this. But the whole pushing of the name Yahweh was very much associated with the Jewish Israelite push for recognition, our God, tribalism, we're the ones, we'll defeat you, we take the land, our God is it. And so we have this problem of seeming that the name of God is not really fully understood in the context that God wanted to be understood, so we have to name him in the way that we would name a child, or a friend, or a dog, or a cat, or a hamster, or a budgie, which you don't see anymore. Where have budgies gone? I mean, everybody from my generation know that all our grandparents had budgies. Everybody had a budgie. Every house had a budgie regard. And now you don't see them. What's all that about? It's the world coming to. Point I'm trying to make here is that, is that I am is not a name in the way that we understand names. So the problem is, we then have to try and make it so that we turn it into a name so we can now take a concept and make it something that now we can, we can control into a framework that will always make it less than it was supposed to be. See, the problem with I am, as the declared reference is that you can't really call it a name in the conventional sense. Who shall I say sent me? I am, well, what kind of a name is that? Moses seems to be struggling with it. 
And it seems then that the writers, the point I'm making, that the writers of those five books also struggled with it. And in the context of their need for national identity, because of the struggle with that, begin to change the thing so that we now introduce God as if he were just like us. Problem with Ayam, as the declared references, you can't really call it a name in the conventional sense. The problem is that it refers to a presence more than a person. See, in the way that we would understand a person, it doesn't make sense. But in the way we understand presence, it makes sense. So God is more saying, this is my presence, I am. And it's about the immediacy, it's about the moment, it's about, it's about now. It's about being, it's about I am. So, so the reason I said I have a problem with the naming of God is that we lose that essence of the fact that this name refers to a presence more than it does a person. Now the problem for the Israelite writers is this makes this being always and to all. See, I am always and to all. And rather than tribal and to some, it makes it always and to all. So there is a problem of, of dynamic going on in the Old Testament story of Israel because there is a struggle of the God who is always and to all rather than the one who is tribal and to some. And that affects how we see God and what we think when we think about God. And so follows the naming of God in a way that tries to minimise or eradicate that thought. If we can give him a normal name, we can get rid of that problem and we can make it again tribal and to some. Now, many things get weaved into the tapestry of truth, which may not in themselves be totally true. Every one of us has a tapestry of truth. If you think you've got all the truth, please come and share your absolute wisdom with me because I'd love to know. We all have a tapestry of truth. And many things get waved into that tapestry of truth which actually may not in themselves be totally true. Particularly when one is able to consider them within an informed bigger picture and that's part of what we're trying to do at Q is give you an informed bigger picture so that we can sift through some of this stuff. One of the seemingly outlandish claims of scripture is quite enlightening if you let it speak for itself and it's in the New Testament, it's in John chapter 16 and in verse 13. Jesus said this, he said, when he the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Will guide you. All truth. The inference being that he hasn't already. Do you get that? If when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, the inference is that he hasn't done that already. Therefore, what we are talking about in the context of this journey that brings us to this point, we have to say there has not been a revelation of all truth and there has been distortion within that that we are now trying to see 
put right. Why would Jesus of all people cast that aspersion? What might he have been trying to point out when he was suggesting that we haven't yet been led into all truth? And then there's the claim of Jesus himself, John 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Suggesting that actually truth is more related to who a person is than the name of the person. Like I am is more related to who the divine is than naming him as a person. And he said these words, no one comes to the Father except through me. Not no one comes to God. Not no one comes to Yahweh. Not no one comes to Jehovah. But no one comes to the Father except through me. So could there be within there the suggestion that the image of God had been hijacked at the expense of the nature or action of God? That this could be borne out by the non-use by Jesus of the name Yahweh. You have not one single reference in the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels to him referring to God as Yahweh, which was the name that the Israelites had said was the name of God, but God himself had said, I am, and although Yahweh is some way in Hebrew slightly a derivative of that, it still misses the point of the presence rather than the name. So Jesus didn't use the name Yahweh. Now it's interesting, the name Jesus means he who saves. So if he who saves doesn't use the name Yahweh, the question would be, what is it that he who saves is saving us from? Could it be that he's saving us from a tribal and a gospel that is to some, that he's saving us from how we have taken the name of God and we have moved it from an experience and moved it to a thing, Interesting. So, let me give you one other little bit before I bring this to a close. You see, the term God is in a sense meaningless. The, the Hebrew equivalent of our Greek word theos, God, from which theology comes, the study of God, and even, even in that context, the, the, the other aspects that go with that, but let's just take God, which in the Greek is Theos, and Elohim, which is the equivalent in the Hebrew, are simply descriptions of a species, not an identification of a specific being. For example, man, 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 woman, woman, woman. I've told you the species, but it gives you no indication either of who that is. So I could say Joel and Stuart and Dave and Maggie and Lucy and Ruth. 
But that doesn't tell you what Joel is like or what Stuart is like or what Dave is like or what Maggie is like or what Lucy is like or what Ruth is like. It tells you nothing. Thank you. You're a treasure. It tells you nothing about what they are like. It simply allocates to them an identification tag. The reason God is I am is because it breaks that model. Once we put a name on him, we are saying, A, that he is of the species of the divine, and this is what we are going to call him, but it doesn't tell you what he is like. I am tells you what he is like. So the name he always wanted to use was I am, because that tells you what he is like, and it invites you not to attach to a name, it invites you to attach to a being, it invites you to attach to life itself. See, I am identifies the nature and essence, not the species. And likewise, Father identifies the nature and essence, not the species. See, when Jesus used the term all the time, which he did, of the theos, the divine, Father, he was in the same way describing this is what he is like. This is what he does. It's not a name. It's an action. It's something that comes out. It's what he does. It's not the name. Father and I am were what he does. It was a revelation going all the way through from what we think is Moses to all the way through to what we believe is Jesus. So what does that all mean in practical terms for us? Well, you know, without taking this any deeper, happy to talk to any of you if you've got questions. Here's what I think it means in practical terms. When, when Moses had this experience at the bush where he says, who shall I tell them sent me? And God said, I am. And this is his name. Moses, when he turned up there, and God says, Moses... He replied something very interesting because Moses said, here I am. And it's interesting that all through the life of Jesus, he kept saying something. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true bread. I am the light of the world. You see, what was happening in Jesus is that he didn't use the word Jehovah or Yahweh. He used the term I am, but he connected himself with the I am so that the I am and Jesus became one flow, one manifest life, one manifest expression. And so when Moses responds at this burning bush, he says, here I am. So Moses' response to I am was, here I am. So the answer to the question, God, are you there, is, I am. The answer to the question, am I loved? <laughs> she great, isn't she? Is... I am. The answer to the question, who is the one I can depend on, is I am. The answer to who is the way, the truth, and the life is 
I am. Now, wait a minute. Surely, Anth, you can't say that. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? I am. Do you see what happens when you understand God to be the I am, then I am. So when he says I am, who I am, and Jesus says I and the Father are one, he is saying I am who I am. And so in my life now, when I live a life that says to God, the divine, the I am, here I am, then my I am and is I am, is I am who I am, and suddenly there is a connection between heaven and earth, between the divine and the human, between, between the eternal and that which is in time, that the I am has become one because I am. Do you get it? Jesus said, I am, because that was the name that when you say, here I am, becomes the name that you're attached to. The second half of I am, who I am, is where you fit in to the name of the divine. I am, who I am, and my identity is one with his identity. Therefore, my life is one with his life, and what he is, I am, and we have been made one, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus who brought to us in the physical human body the right to say, I am. So how is all that enacted in reality? It's all enacted when my response to I am is here I am. I believe in something more, something greater, something bigger than just our own futile existence. I think we are amazing creatures. I think our brains are fantastic. I think our powers of analysis are brilliant. But one of the things I often say to Chris is there's not one single thing in the universe that prospers on its own. Not one. The way the universe prospers is because everything is interrelated. Everything is in partnership. Everything is connected. And everything that is connected in the universe lives and gives life. You see, you were never made to make it on your own. No matter how much information you glean, no matter how much education you get, no matter how much nous you think you have, you were never made to make it on your own and you won't if you try. And the longer you try, the more the fall will be because you realise I can't make it on my own. I like the fact that right at the beginning of Moses beginning a new stage of his life, God gave him the opportunity to say, here I am. And in saying, here I am, he became one with, I am. And then I am, who I am, has now got the whole flow 
of the God of creation working through it. Just take a minute in your own heart. Just take a moment. As I've thought about this, I've thought, you know what? The greatest verbal thing that I can do with my lips, with my mouth, or with my heart, and with my mind, is to respond to the one who is I am with the statement, here I am. And I believe in the same way that something happened that day out in that wilderness with Moses in this story. Something happens in every human being that responds to the I am by saying, here I am. Might be a good time for you to do it in your heart tonight. Might be a good moment to say, here I am. Because the answer to your question is, I am. The answer to your need is, I am. Not an independent, self-centered, self-righteous thing, but a willing heart connection with the one whose nature is, I am. Don't let a name for God get in the way. Let the reality of who he is become the reality as you respond tonight with here I am. So be blessed, be changed, be revolutionized. Feel the life, feel the flow, feel the joy and uh, let it flow out to someone else. All right, we're done. Are you coming back or are we done? All right. So, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk a little deeper tonight. Um, I hope the truth in it has helped you and, uh, and go live in it with the here I am. All right, bless you, we're done. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.